Hello, I'm Kate Fisher. Welcome to Milkshakes for Mali, the podcast that tells the survival stories of blood product recipients. I just want to open today's episode with a message of love to our fellow Queenslanders who are all facing this crazy weather and flooding at the moment. Um, You can probably hear the rain in the background of this episode at different times today. It's been a pretty full on week um, and we're dropping this episode a bit later today as we've been juggling road closures and school closures and there's flooding all around us at the moment. So um, I just hope that everyone is staying safe. We are perfectly safe. Um, I hope you are too. We're just yeah taking a few extra measures. Um, drive carefully. If it's flooded, forget it. And I beg of you, turn your bloody headlights on when you are driving in the rain. Stay safe, everyone. This podcast aims to bridge the gap of anonymity between Australian blood donors and their recipients. It documents the remarkable lives that recipients go on to live, the contributions they make to their communities, and the joy that they bring to those around them. If you have ever been a blood donor, you could have been the one to save the life of the guests that we profile here on the Milkshakes for Mali podcast each week. And becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. Milkshakes for Mali is the name of the amazing lifeblood team of donors who were inspired to donate plasma and other blood products after hearing the story of our amazing six-year-old daughter Mali, who has seronegative autoimmune encephalitis. For Mali, plasma infusion is life-saving when she relapses and life-preserving for every infusion in between. Today's guest also benefited from Australian blood donors at the age of six, and he has gone on to live the most amazing life. It makes, makes me so excited to see what Marley could go on to achieve in the future. Brendan Hall lost his leg and 70% of his hearing at age six due to complications from chickenpox, but what he didn't lose was his life. That is thanks to Australian blood donors. Brendan reports that he received over 80 bags of blood and plasma when he was in intensive care after his leg was amputated. He has gone on to compete in four Paralympic Games, two Commonwealth Games, three Pan Pacific Para Swimming Championships. He was the youngest on the male dolphin swimming team at the 2008 Beijing Games and was awarded an Order of Australia medal for his service to sport as a gold medalist at the London 2012 Paralympic Games. Across his international swimming career, Brendan has achieved a staggering 17 gold, 7 silver and 7 bronze medals. Brendan, welcome to the Milkshakes for Marley podcast. Thanks very much for having me. We've just opened the episode with a list of your achievements in your remarkable swimming career Um, and congratulations on all that you have achieved in the pool. Um, We're going to start with one of those, think quick, don't answer quick, don't think about it too much. Um, If you could only keep one of those medals, which one would it be and why? Uh, My gold medal from London, purely because it's, it's your first one and it becomes the most special and the one you significantly remember the the most vividly so um yeah it'll be that one yeah awesome all right so take me back to six-year-old brendan and of course um we always remind our guests that this is not a medically or scientifically correct podcast it's just your recollection and i'm sure six-year-old brendan doesn't remember a huge amount um but what do you remember about your life before you got the chicken pox and became unwell um i'd like to think my life was uh pretty normal uh looking back at pictures that mom and dad took 
from those days. And I had a two two year old younger brother, Marcus. It uh, seemed pretty normal to me. We were always like mucking about everywhere, and uh, you know, I just finished preschool, was going through grade one. Um, I'd worked out that my best mate was living literally two houses around the corner from me and we went to preschool, went to kindy together, preschool together. We were in the same class for grade one. So, you know, everything was going sweet. Um, I was enjoying swimming. I was enjoying getting out there, kicking the footy with all my new friends that I'd created in grade one on the oval, that sort of stuff. And yeah, just, uh, I think in general, enjoying life as any six-year-old kid would. Yeah, awesome. Um- So when you became unwell with chickenpox, which is something that lots of kids get, it's a pretty common thing to happen, even with vaccination, people still get it mildly. Um, Complications meant that you had to have your leg amputated and you also lost 70% of your hearing. Which one of those things was harder for six-year-old Brendan and which one causes you the most challenges now? Um. Oh, that's a good one. They two questions in the one hit me with like a double answer. Uh, no, back then as a six-year-old, Brendan, uh, a lot of those complications for me as a youngster, it was really hard losing my leg because uh, I spent the first few months, low months, um, like learning about what a prosthetic would do, is how it's going to work. So I spent a lot of that time in a wheelchair. And uh, as any kid would, you really start to hate that and sort of hate life a bit purely because you can see what everybody else around you is doing and you just feel really restricted. You can't get out there, kick the ball, all that sort of stuff. You can't go upstairs. Um, It was just, yeah, a really down sort of moment, you know, coming back to school um, halfway through grade two after losing my leg and... Yeah, my class was upstairs and I was like, so the first few, first well, few weeks I was like. could have made some accommodation for that. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, this is not going to work. So the first two weeks, um, if it wasn't my dad, some dad would, who uh, from a friend in class would help me carry me up the stairs to sort of get to class. And then the school became really accommodating and realised that uh, in order to, you know, make it the most normal for me they would have they had to move my classroom so that it was more uh, wheelchair accessible and you know looking back at those things it's really amazing how many things aren't wheelchair accessible and still aren't today so that was the hardest part when I was a youngster but you know fast forward a year and I didn't really care about that at all I was missing a leg and I sort of moved on pretty quickly but um, these days, it's definitely my hearing. It's like if someone put that question to me and like, what's the one thing you want back out of your, whether it be your leg or your hearing, and I'd have to say my hearing, yeah. just because you grow up in this ever-changing social environment and you don't become aware of it until, you know, I make use of a hearing aid here and there and use it at uni and that sort of stuff. Even just as simply as watching a movie with some dub titles after I've watched it in cinema and I realise, oh, I didn't hear that part. You missed that really significant <laughs> bit. Yeah. Um, so it's one of those things that I'm like, I sort of become a bit scared going out into those social situations, knowing that I'm full, fully not going to hear all the conversations that are going mm-hmm. on. And I, I never want to come off rude to people because that's like, I don't want them hating me because I haven't responded to them. And mm-hmm. cause if they come up to me on my right side, I'm completely mm-hmm. oblivious to what anyone's going to say. So um, 
yeah, like I still get anxiety trying to yeah. make a phone call and, and uh, book appointments. And, you know, I'm, I'm a fully grown adult now with a mm. child of my own. So um, it's one of those things that I'm like, it's, I still struggle with every sort of day to sort of get over it. But, you know, every now and then you sort of forget about it, but then you go into those situations and you're like, man, I wish I had my hearing back. So is there something, we always give people an opportunity to raise awareness on the podcast, even if it's sort of outside the blood donation thing. Is there something that people could do to make that easier for you if they are with someone that they know has got a hearing impairment of some kind? Look, I think the hardest part for the hard of hearing these days or people with hearing loss is that I know masks are in place to sort of help protect everyone, help protect the community and, you know, reduce risk here and there. But people also have to remember that there are hard of hearing people within the community and we're not always going to hear what's said behind that mask. And a lot of people forget that they don't change their voice tones once they put that mask on. So you already have your you soft and quiet speaker who continues to speak softly and quietly behind their mask. And um, a lot of us use lips to try and, you know, narrow it down as to what was said. And mm. um, obviously we can't see them. So it's, you know, just a slight reminder that if you are wearing a mask, just speak up a little bit, like turn yep. your volume up a little bit. You might not be aware of it, but it, it does make a large difference if you can just speak that little bit louder um, if you yeah. do have a mask on because um, we know we do our best to try and make sure that we let people know that we um, are hard of hearing and yeah. sometimes we if it does get too hard we it's like reply they ask is it right if you remove your mask and I know everyone's got different sort of feelings and of opinions and, and all that sort of bad stuff but yeah it's just one of those situations that like especially when you go to events mm-hmm. uh over the last year and you go to an event and it's indoors and it's a requirement like it's been a requirement to wear a mask and like I'm a full advocate for all that but yeah those situations over the last year have have really scared me and like that's as an adult like it's not something you'd be willing to admit but that's how I felt so yeah just that additional anxiety. We've picked up on a few different episodes with different things through the podcast about um, invisible disability and how, you know, it's more difficult to make accommodations to that if people don't understand. So thank you for sh- sharing that with us. You know, that's really, yeah, no really useful. Um, so you told me before we recorded this episode that your mum remembers you having 80 bags of whole blood and plasma. Um, in part to manage the blood clot in the remaining part of your leg while you were in an intensive care unit. Have you ever allowed yourself to consider that without those hundreds and hundreds of blood donors that you might not have survived? (laughs) Yeah, well and truly. um, You know, a few years back when I was in high school and they're like, oh, there's, you know, a blood shortage of, a plasma shortage of these blood types and I remember going when I was old enough to mum and dad I'm like hey you know what was um the go with me like like did I receive blood and all this stuff and they're like yeah yeah you received a heap and you know you don't really pay that much attention to it when you're in high school you, yeah, yeah, your mind's sort of going everywhere else especially yeah. when I was swimming and all that sort of stuff and it's only now that I've started to get older I've started to, and through my studies at university it's just um 
you um, grasp that concept of how important uh, being able to donate blood is. Mm -hmm. So like, thankfully like then, um, I, um, you know, did my part and donated blood and, and then I was like, oh, okay, this is a good thing to do. And the only downside to me was that the, after donating the blood you know, and stuff like, oh yeah, you, you're not allowed to do any physical activity for the next yeah. three days or exerting yourself. Oh, and I was it. like, okay, I did not consider that beforehand. And so I was like three days out of the pool and then like yeah. two sessions just doing um, kick only resting my arm. And I was like, I've really got to rethink when I give blood <laughs> so that I don't <laughs> miss too much training and get in trouble from my coach. But um, it's that it's one of those things that like, I was aware of how much I needed it and how much I required. Mm. And just to think that like, there's probably someone or even more than just one person on a daily basis in those scenarios that probably needs just as much or Hundreds. more. Yeah. And Absolutely. so it's, it's kind of like, we do really need to be able to make society aware of this to sort of actually get more people involved to make sure that those stockpiles do don't get, don't get too low and, um, that people are all of a sudden in desperate need and they no longer have a, these sort of things available to them. Mm. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we've been highlighting through the podcast as well is that in your situation, you couldn't possibly have known the week before that you were about to become dependent on hundreds of blood donors to keep you alive. There's, we know lots of families um, in similar situations to ours with our daughter that unless she has regular plasma infusion, she won't leave. So when she has an yeah. acute autoimmune encephalitis relapse, she needs a lot more plasma. Um, she needs massive, massive doses of it, but she needs that regular maintenance plasma to keep the inflammation at bay in her brain and to stop her immune system from wrongly identifying her healthy brain cells as foreign and attacking her brain. So there's so many different uses for it. So when we see, you know, critical plasma shortage in Southeast Queensland, that really is terrifying to us because that is saying to us, you know, does your kid get her treatment or not? Does she get to stay as part of your family? So, um, yeah, it's scary times. And we're all going to either ourselves or have someone that we love need blood. It's, you know, the more people that you talk to, the more people I realise have needed it for so many different reasons. So we're so, so, so grateful to blood donors. Um, you are married and you've recently become a father to a precious, precious baby boy who is absolutely adorable. So congratulations on that. Has that nice. experience of becoming a parent made you reflect on the experience that your family must have gone through when you were unwell? In a different way. Yeah, like all of a sudden... <laughs> This I'm thing comes the into your world. <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden, um, you know, this this obvious thing you know, <clears throat> like come, comes into your world, and you realize in, in like in that instant that um, you would literally do anything, uh, anything in your literal <clears throat> life <clears throat> to. Yeah uh be a shield or protect uh this little fella that you'll have all of a sudden become responsible for and yeah. nothing else really matters anymore it doesn't you know gold medals don't it gives a rat's ass about a gold medal um at that yeah. point so it's kind of like 
And then all of a sudden it just clicks over and you're like, wait a minute, there's a lot of scary stuff out in this world. Maybe I don't want to leave this hospital with him. Maybe he's like perfectly safe in this room just with, you know, his mom and me. It's uh, that makes like, this is the safest route forward, isn't it? Uh, but then you're like, no, we got to get him out. We got to get him experiencing stuff. And, but you want to, at the same time, you want to protect and shield. You also want to, getting to fail and learn yeah. and experience those things to sort of um, move forward and become his own evolved person. And yeah, but those thoughts don't really hit you until all of a sudden you're holding it in the delivery, yeah. <laughs> holding him in the delivery room yeah, um, and looking at him and you just go on. Yeah. Uh, I got no idea what I'm supposed to do, but we're just going to wing it and hope for the best. And, if a bullet does come his way, I'll make sure that, you know, yeah. I'm the first one to jump in front of it or even better, I'll be making sure that it's his mum, then me, then then him. So um, yeah. as much protection look, as possible. So, you jump yeah. in front of the bullet and I'll try and drum up some blood donors so that if you need some blood to keep you kicking after you get the bullet, we'll do it as a team effort. Um, yeah, exactly. My husband and I had a shocker when our little fella was about six weeks old and we were driving up to my mum's place so we could surprise his grandma for a birthday, driving up a mountain and had a BMW overtake us on double lines coming into a blind corner. And we just had that moment of if another car comes around the corner and there's plenty of semi-trailers that come down that mountain as well and, yeah. you know, pulled over and just had that moment of if something happened to us in that situation, that would be a bit suboptimal. If something happened to our baby in that situation, like it's amazing the different value that you place on your own life once yes. you're a little person of your own. So parenting is yes, definitely. <laughs> um, so one thing that I often ask blood product recipients um, when they become parents is has it occurred to you that had blood donors not donated blood products that you were treated with at the age of six, then your son wouldn't have been born because you wouldn't have been here. So he wouldn't have been there. And it's that yeah. butterfly effect of had the donors not been there to donate, you wouldn't have got the treatment that you needed and then your child wouldn't have been born. So how much that changes lives. Um how has he changed your life? Even just on your day-to-day -day routine of being so focused on your career and your swimming and uni and that kind of stuff before, how much has having a little person in your world changed your day-to-day -day life? Yeah, like <clears throat> you just like saying all that like gives me goosebumps. Like I know yeah. like a lot of it's like I was lucky enough to get all those, have a the availability of all those donations to sort of get through that tough time and yeah. like mum and dad's uh, quick decision making at the same time as well to sort of allow all the doctors and all the surgeons and all the medical staff to sort of go through that process and start that process in order to make sure that you know I was going to be still kicking here today and mm. kind of like it always does hit me that like if they we didn't go down that route you know I definitely wouldn't be here having that conversation today that's um like a hundred percent fact yeah um so yeah it's kind of like I'm really grateful for what happened to me back then and how I managed to 
sort of change and affect my life as I was growing up I feel like it really kind of um not really cemented anything but definitely changed like the the pathway of where I was going to go so it's um now all of a sudden you know you're thrown another big curveball and your pathway you all of a sudden start reassessing all your priorities and um, where you want to go and what you considered normal is you just you know like a piece of paper scrunch it up throw it yeah. out the throw it over yeah. your shoulder and um no real no real map at the moment as such kind of just enjoying each little step as it comes mm. and um yeah you know i sort of love that little bit of unknown yeah. and for me it's like I've always been someone to not shy away from a challenge in life. You know, if you always told me, like I've been told numerous times throughout my life that no, someone, yeah, Brendan, don't worry about that. You're not going to be able to handle that. Um, you will work away around it. And like, it's literally not going to be possible. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how many times I've had variations of like all of that through my life. And um, even like reflecting after like, probably not a not so successful Tokyo campaign last year uh, where I was kind of down in the dumpsters, but then, you know, with all the right support uh, network around me and mm-hmm. uh, especially my wife and then coming back home and realizing what I was having to look forward to at the end of that year. Um, like in comparison, I was like, yeah, swimming's important and, you know, it's been my life for the last 15 or so years, but like, Mm. it's not the only thing in life that I really should be worrying about. And so, you know, I got always be like, you know, keen to like come home and have a rest from training and all that sort of stuff. And I still am. And was, but like now when I get out of the water, I'm I'm more like, Oh, I wonder if the little fella is going to be awake when I get home. Is is, it like, Am I going to feed him or like, do I have to, you know, help my partner out, yeah. um, help her, you know, take him for a bit. And I'm, I'm yeah. happy to like take him for a bit because I want to like do my part here and there. And yeah, it's little different things that I didn't think would excite me are now like all excite me. And it's kind of like a, a last few last week or so, obviously, because I go training early in the morning. I've been lucky enough to be able to do that and still train in the afternoon. My partner, Britt, she's fantastic um it's he's got onto the toilet cycle now where he manages to get a dirty nappy while i'm at training in the morning so i kind of (laughs) like dodge uh the full diaper clean and i'm kind of like oh yeah it's not too bad i'm dodging the messy ones but i kind of like oh i i want to you know i want to get my fair share in here somewhere he's got to do it at some point so it's just those like little sort of things that uh you weren't aware of that you were going to enjoy and now all of a sudden you yeah your priorities um kind of get realigned and yeah there's a lot more to life than just swimming that I've discovered over the last six months which is um I feel like which has kind of made me feel uh better about getting back into the pool and getting back to some training and hopefully looking at some competitions this year and hopefully getting into the green and gold um, once more. 
So I'm interested to hear about your association with surf lifesaving. Um, I had another podcast that you spoke on where you said that you were just as proud to pull on the yellow and red as you were to pull on the green and gold. Um, can you tell me about what you do with surf lifesaving? Yeah, um, for me, I think uh, I was one of those kids who, like mum and dad wanted us to be water safe. Like we spent every, like, with almost every weekend up the coast um because that's where originally we came from uh, until we moved to brizzy and then <clears throat> yeah but somehow we managed to miss the nipper like the nipper train and <clears throat> the surf sports bug and we kind of just went you know straight to the pool swimming stuff yeah. and um but there like my wife grew up doing nippers and all that yeah, sort of stuff awesome. and so and then the opportunity comes around when we're in high school where you get to sort of go and do um, like surf skills course. You get to do uh, your bronze medallion and everything. And I was like, oh, that'd be really cool to do. But at the same time, I was like, oh, I want to do this at uni. I was seeing myself going down a certain career path and you have to sort of do these certain subjects. And obviously you had to sort of, I couldn't fit rec studies in to sort of do all that surf stuff. Anyway, fast forward two years, uh, my brother was doing it. He he was looking at going to a trade. So he was like, great, I can do rec studies. I'm going to do all the surf stuff. Um, so he went and got his uh, bronze in uh, 2010. Mm. And then, so then we ended up moving to the surf club where um, my father-in-law is actually, he was in that surf club with my sister-in-law so we were like all right we're going to do that's where we'll do our surf life saving at king's beach met cloundra and so he moved there after he got his bronze medallion and then i was like oh i need a stint where i you have a week to do like your course right. in bronze medallion i was like oh well i was getting ready for all these different various events from grade 10 to now and yeah i was like i was only having time off from swimming like after every Paralympic event. So, uh, you know, my next longest amount of time off was after London 2012. Mm -hmm. And I was like, great, I'm having a month off. There's a week long bronze camp on that week. I'm going to get in and do the bronze with, you know, a bunch of school kids. <laughs> and yeah, I was like, I mean, like 19 at a time. So it's like one of the oldest ones on the camp. I was like, that's cool. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of fun, but I think for me, it was, it was more of like the challenge. I was like, well, I want to be involved in surf life saving. Like I want to see how much I can sort of like change the face of it and sort of change everyone's perceptions of that. Oh, you know, that guy's missing on a leg. He's not going to be able to save anyone's life. And like, yeah, like I appreciate your thoughts, but can't wait to prove you wrong. Yeah. That was kind of my way of looking at it. And like, I'm really grateful for like um, the club, and a few people in the club who along the way had, we had to jump through quite a lot of hoops to sort of um get surf life saving on board to you know come down and actually be like all right well he's gonna have to do this this and this for assessment we're gonna have to modify this a little bit but we'd really prefer if he do this and all this sort of stuff we got to make sure that you know he's fine with being liable if stuff does go wrong we don't want it to come back and you know hit us yep. if yeah. something bad does go wrong and all I wanted to do was like know that I'm in their court like I will literally be doing everything in my willpower to make sure that I'm as skilled as possible and being able to 
help anyone on the beach that needs help or in the water that needs help so mm-hmm. yeah when I was able to sort of go through it and get it done and get a few of my other certifications done I was like cool I, I managed to blow you know the certifiers away of they had to sort of eat their words a little bit because they yeah, were like, brilliant. nah, there's no way he's going to do this. And then the yeah. next minute they see this guy who's doing, carrying someone out of the water with one leg, like actually like holding on to someone, like hopping up the beach. And yeah, they're like, okay, maybe we were wrong. And I was like, it's not kind of like a told you so moment for me, but it's more like, I'm like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, if we have these opportunities, of course, we're going to, do everything we can and make the most of it because that's what we've been doing our whole life like we've a lot of us have had second chances so we're gonna make the most of it Mm. and yeah so I was like great now you know I can I can don the red and yellow with my brother every second weekend from September till May and you know we help keep people safe on the beach but it's just one of those things that I just love seeing members of the public the look on their face when they're not regulars at the beach where I patrol and yeah. uh, you just I go down for my swim because um, if it's not too busy I'll enjoy a good swim out in the surf and yeah. you just see the look of like on their face they're like mm, no I don't know about this guy he's, he's definitely not going to be able to help us like nah not going to mm-hmm. trust him or they like you, you just see them like looking around for who else is like patrolling yeah, sure. the beach at the time you can see that you can sort of see the look in their eyes and then go out for my swim I'm usually out for about an hour I might do a few laps up and back depends on what the surf's like or whether it's a bit flat I come back in and then if they're still on the beach usually sometimes they are you just sort of all of a sudden say that nah we'll go we'll get this guy to save us if we get in trouble you can just see like that and they're like oh yeah you know what you're doing you're fine we're all good and so it's so much Um, more than water safety too for those people to see you doing that, you know, it ch- it changes people's perception of disability, I think. And um, I was thinking about all the school kids that you did the bronze medallion with. That's so much more than just seeing that you could swim. It shows them that it doesn't really matter what they want to do in life, that there's a way that they can achieve it, you know, able-bodied or with disability or not, that it's just that workaround. If you work hard enough for something, there's nothing in life that you can't achieve. And I think that's really important for all of those people. Um, so the Winter Paralympics start next week. Is there a sport that you're particularly excited about watching? Yeah, um, the ice hockey, yeah. the para ice hockey, just because it's like I enjoy wheelchair rugby and wheelchair basketball because of the pure brute, like brutality of them yeah. um, and like the injuries and like body and chairs going everywhere and it's like just transferring it to ice, isn't it? And yeah, I, I really enjoy getting behind that. Yeah, and I think that's sort of what I was trying to get to is that the elite sport and the competition and the rush of competition and the psychology of it all, is that what it is that you love or is it the swimming um, itself that you love? And it sounds like it's a bit of both. It's probably a bit of both, but like I feel like the rush the competition, the adrenaline and, and the, the feelings, they like, they couldn't kind of compound onto it. And like the, the bonus, the little things that come as a reward from loving swimming in the first place. Yeah. Uh, I've just literally spent majority of my life just being grateful for the fact that I get to do something every day that I love doing, which is you know, swimming up and down a pool following a yeah. black line. 
which people think is insane half the time. And they're like, oh yeah, you must really love the competition. And I, I'm like, really, I, I do enjoy it. Like, don't get me wrong. Like the competition is where it's at. Like you want to yeah. end up winning medals for your country, all that is like the cream of the crop. And that's what you want to end up doing. But at the end of the day, I think for me, I enjoy the challenge of the journey in the first place. And that's just doing the countless hours up and down in the pool where it's just me, the water, the black line and the clock and like me physically now hurting every day of my life. Um, yeah, that's what I think. It's just, I love, mm. I love being in the water that much. That's kind of all that really matters. Mm. I did, we did an episode with um, a surfer called Joel Mason, who was attacked by a shark um, and actually had to have a blood transfusion on the sand before they could even put him in a chopper. And they said to the Whoa. chopper when it was on its way there, if you don't have blood on board, don't bother coming because this guy's going to bleed out before you can get him. Yep. He's not going to make it to hospital Whoa. if you don't have blood. So the chopper stopped midway there, picked up some blood and then took it to him. He had it on the beach and he's going great guns now. He's living a really great life. And that's a fascinating story. Whoa. but. One of the things I talked to him about as well, he spends a lot of time in the water still, still loves his surfing is, um, you know, in a world where we have so much input, you know, people are constantly on phones, social media. It's so rare that we're doing things without having that input from the outside. It fascinates me when I speak to people that spend a lot of time in the water because it's not just chasing that black line or using your body. You're in your own head for that many hours yeah. a day with no other input other than your own thoughts. And I just find that even just from a sports psychology point of view, I find that fascinating. Like how much the time that you're in there, are you actually thinking about swimming? Like 25%. <laughs> yeah. So, And I frame that around, um, I don't even know if this is going to make it into our podcast episode. I'm just enjoying talking to you. And I find this fascinating. Um, Andre Agassi's biography is one of the, or autobiography is one of the most fascinating things I have ever read. Look, I'm pretty sure he wrote it. So to be honest, it's not a literary masterpiece in any sense of the word, but fascinating story and he's done some crazy shit in his life but it's just about that sports psychology aspect of when you know they're out there for you know five or six hours at a time sometimes and it's just him and his yeah. tennis racket and a ball and the court and every single decision that he makes you can't blame anyone else you know you can yell at the umpire if you want to but everything that he does is his it's so different with yes. similar psychology wise to swimmers but for such a shorter amount of time that you've got this well, in your case, five, you build up to your last Olympics and then it's all over so quickly. It yeah. just, I just find it fascinating to it's, spend that much time in your own head training, but then the actual final event is over so quickly. Yeah, it's it's one of those things is like people always ask, like, why do you have to be like in the water so much when yeah. the majority of the majority of the stuff you guys do is like done in yeah. less than four <laughs> minutes? Like, what's the point? And yeah. Sometimes, you know, there these days there are a few times where I'm like, what is the point of being in the water this long? Yeah. That's usually like if I'm in so much pain, I've had enough. But yeah, I don't know. I think you just certain times where like you definitely know throughout a race or through training that your body is feeling a certain way. You know how you have to catch the water. You know how your arm's supposed to move through the water. You know you're supposed to see like it's just becomes that automatic response yeah. to everything you just kind of end up going through the motions and then 
alarm bells go off when something doesn't feel right within that automatic motion and then you go along until you adjust it and then it's like you picked up that you pick up that correction and mm-hmm. and then everything's normal and it's like smooth and the tracks smooth again and then you'll just feel that like little hiccup again and you play around until that hiccup's fixed it's um it's just one of those things that I really be I really love kind of doing and tinkering with and at the end of the day when it does come to that race and it does you don't perform the way like at the end of the day, I've had so many people get me to that point, help get me to that point to get up and represent my country from like my coach, my wife, my my family, mum and dad, my brother, through support, um, support staff, physio, massage, psych, mm. nutrition. Like the list yeah. is is a massive pyramid underneath us. But at the end of the day, if I don't, breathe at this right time or take this stroke the specific way or catch the water the way that I've been training for that's it's not going to be it's not the outcome's not going to be the way it's going to I've dreaming not been dreaming of it's going to be so yeah um uh, I think that's kind of the perfectionist in me mm. um but yeah I just love being able to in the water the majority of the time you don't think about what you're doing it's just you just do it and yeah. that's when I've performed my best where I mm-hmm. got up on the block not thought about it just got in done it no no um, no dragging the tail between my legs or anything no yeah. thinking about eh, is this angle right is that breath too early all that sort of stuff and I think that's what I got too caught up in over the last year and um now it's kind of like yeah um not really that fast now but like i'll be swimming along and i know that nah, something doesn't feel right i'll fix it and yeah. that's it like i don't think about it again um and i you know i think about like oh i wonder if i get to change a diaper when i get home um <laughs> but yeah so it's just those sort of things that um you get used to doing things and i'd always like my mates we'd figure out a way and we could replay a whole movie in our head during a whole training session and not think about something once you just go through how it's written on the board you get what you have to get done um the coach is happy with your effort and your output and that's where you wanted to be that's where you were sitting i think those times in training and is when you perform the best when you're not actually thinking about it too much and like it it just comes natural and it becomes easy so Mm. yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't really trade it for anything except the little fellow that I've got downstairs. Yeah. yeah, so special. Um, well, the final parts of my questions actually leading to the little fellow that you've got downstairs. And a big part of the reason that I wanted to interview was due to the way that others, swimmers and other athletes talk about you. Um, and I guess I want to pick up what, when it is time to hang up the goggles, what you want your legacy to be of your time in the pool. Um, you know, you've got your Order of Australia medal. I'm assuming that you're planning on going on to Paris. You're studying physiotherapy and you don't have to answer any of those things of what your plans are from here. That's not the point of the podcast. But what would you like your little fella to look back at your time in swimming and your legacy to be and to see you represented as? Is it gold medalist or is it contribution to swimming community or what is it? What's important? Well, to me, like for all, like he was even on the cars, it's you and when you're younger, it's like you just become like you 
set out you wanted to accomplish these sort of things and you know you got to have a certain amount of fling in the bag to be noticed to be recognized to be remembered mm-hmm. and that's was kind of always the case um probably until the end of 2019 when I came off a crap world championships that I wasn't really satisfied I wasn't really satisfied with how I was feeling in the water I was satisfied with life you know I, I got married that year uh, mm. had a honeymoon um, you know life was going great I'd started my physio degree um, everything was on track to pretty yeah. much like yeah get life in focus after swimming um, so like swimming probably took the back seat so um, it was just about I think finding balance and and then I probably tipped the scale too much the other way. Mm-hmm. So then the two years into Tokyo, the scales went too far into the swimming side of things and like dipped too far out of the life sort of thing. So um, putting it all into perspective, especially over the last 10 weeks, it's I think it's just a matter of finding that balance again. And I've come to the realisation that, yeah, I could hang up with my goggles, hang my goggles up today yeah. and I'd probably be satisfied. But the competitive mongrel in me um, says no. Yeah. Purely because um, I was so dissatisfied with what I contributed to the team last year that I was, you know, I was questioning everything and I definitely didn't think I was worthy of being on that team after those performances. It was just one of those things. And um, it's not how I wanted to finish. And I was like, I could have finished, but then I'm like, could just finish it there. And my legacy's like, okay, well, but then I'm like, what kind of a human being am I? Am I good enough? Have I contributed enough to the team? Have I made a difference? And, those sort of those sort of all those different questions. It's becomes a very complicated task, and you become very and drowned you've got to in your spend thoughts. Time in the pool, in your own head. Uh, yeah, it's. <laughs> I, I don't recommend it for anyone. It's not a good thing to do. Um, but at the end of all that, you know, um, yeah. So the competitive mongrel in me saying no, and I'd really love to still have the opportunity to, hopefully once the little fella's old enough and yeah. starts remembering little things here and there that I can sort of introduce him into the world that yeah. I've been living in for the last 16 years and make him aware of things so that like he already grows up automatically adjusted to my status quo yeah. so that compared to everybody else's status quo, he's going to question it and he's going to make sure everybody else is on the right track. Yeah. And to him, like disability is the normal. Yeah. Um, so that's what I kind of want to show him and um, get him believing in, I guess, in a way. So, you know, I was like, oh, I'm, you know, next one's in Paris. So I might have to stick around. We might have to give it a shot, see how we go. Like, I've got no expectations. I'd, I'd love to be able to wear the green and gold again. Don't get me wrong. Um, We've like Commonwealth Games this year. We got a World Championships in Portugal, and so that, those sort of things entice me very much. And you know, at the moment, I'm just making sure I get back into training, stay fit. So you know, if I am in good form, well, then hopefully uh, I'll know that I'll. When the mongrel wants to come out, the mongrel will come out, and we'll get there. But at the yeah. moment, I have no expectations. Um, so it used to be about I want to be remembered as like. The gold medalist but not yeah. anymore it's uh i want to be remembered for 
who I was as a person on the team and kind of whether I influenced or whether I made a difference to someone's career path. And it might've been some little conversation we had on the way to the pool and the bus or in the dining hall. I don't really mind. Um, just one little thing if I've managed, like even just going back and talking to kids in swimming clubs these days and making parents aware of how important it is to learning to swim, those sort of mm. things. Uh, mm. That's who I kind of want to be remembered is, is making a difference in someone's life, no matter how big or small it is. And not really as the gold medalist. I'm not really one for accolades of like, Bags oh yeah, hey, you know, I've got, you know, I've got gold medals back home or like, yeah. you know, you're, I'm really important. But that's yeah. nah. the minute I come off that dais, um, like in London and Rio, metal comes off my neck like mm. until we have, I have to put it back on for photos but you know it comes off my neck and goes into my pocket into my bag and yeah I think yeah, it's yeah. living in mum and mum and dad's sock drawer at home somewhere <laughs> I don't know bottom like somewhere in one of the, where they like, are. <laughs> the blanket cupboard I know I've got mice I've got two of them in my linen cupboard somewhere but like it's like yeah the accolades are important when you get there but it's isn't it about being a human being first? Yeah, absolutely. Like, and that's part of the reason that I asked you the question is having spoken to some of your para-athlete peers, that was part of the reason I pursued an interview with you is because I've heard the way that other people speak about you. And I can tell you who they are off the episode because I didn't get their permission to mention them during the episode. But once we stop recording, I can that's tell you fine. who they are. Um, if I'm like really one. shocked that that's what people think I, I you know, I, I like to be honest with like when people ask me questions, like as honest as I can, like sometimes my yeah. answers might be like brutal. Like, I'm not sure if that's what they're after or that's what they want to hear, but I just want to make sure that like what they're getting is the honest truth or, yeah. you know, if someone wants that kind of advice, well then I'm happy to give it here and there. And I just want to make sure that everyone's aware of what they're going to be stepping into or what, what could be coming their way. Like it's not all fairy tale and berry dust sort of stuff um that everyone believes in half the time so i just like to be honest the best way i possibly can and if it's helped someone it um i'm glad it has half the time i'm i'm unaware i'm actually giving advice i don't (laughs) even know what i'm talking about sometimes so i'm still learning a lot of things and i wouldn't really consider myself as a leader so i like to sort of help people where I can behind the scenes and not really Mm. one to sort of stand at the stand at the front and say yeah I'm happy to lead or Mm. I'd rather sit back Mm. and help where I can and or get in the trenches with someone and do it and do it with them Mm. and particularly having grown up on an international stage from such a young age as well that has probably made it difficult to be able you know you're a gold medalist when you're so young but you're still growing up like you know I, it amazes me when athletes are so young and have those pressures and are still able to get in the pool and perform and then expected to do media. And when I think about myself as a teenager, there's no way that I could do half of those things. So I think you guys are amazing. Anyway, final, final question. Um, what message do you have for Australian blood donors and anyone who is considering becoming a first-time donor? Get in there, do it. If you're a first-time donor um it's not scary they give you a juice box or a lollipop afterwards so may i would recommend taking a lollipop that's and having the juice that it does help um didn't want to mention uh, milkshakes you know from, from experience 
on a podcast called Milkshakes for Marley. We can probably talk about milkshakes rather than juice boxes. If we, but hey, if there's a milkshake available, I would highly recommend the milkshake because that's my go-to. Post-comp, I've got to make sure there's a chocolate milkshake ready to go somewhere because that's my recovery tool. But like, you know, if, um, and I, yeah, for all those continuing donors, um, like people of Australia really can't thank you enough for what you are doing. And we hope you can continue to do it for as long as you can. And obviously I'm speaking from experience and any first time donors or anyone thinking about donating, yeah, if you can just sort of, well, think about it, just get in and do it. And you don't actually realize it's that bad because trust me, it's, it's not actually not that bad. And you don't actually realize how many lives you're going to save off that, mm. off that one bag of blood or plasma. And the person receiving it is going to be forever grateful and forever in your debt for doing so. Mm, perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today, Brendan. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. really appreciate it. I got so much out of this chat with Brendan and I hope you did too. He's given me some great insight into navigating life with multiple disabilities and has really helped me to reflect on the way we may approach some things with our kids. And if nothing else, he's reminded me that when all else fails, we just get the competitive mongrel mentality out and give it a red hot crack. And could there be anything more Aussie than that? Nothing feels more Australian, like the modern demonstration of mateship, than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift and it is my privilege to create a space for others to tell their stories and to give thanks. This podcast is written and presented by me, Kate Fisher. Our guest today was swimmer Brendan Hall. My lovely husband, Jeff Fisher, did the audio production for this episode. To make an appointment to donate plasma and other blood products in Australia, please go to lifeblood.com.au and we would love it if you could add your donation to the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood team tally. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Milkshakes for Mali. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and share this episode with a friend. And as always, I will leave the final word to Mali. Thank you for my plasma.